Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness. Sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. From the outside, being in a famous touring rock band seems to be a pretty glamorous thing, right? You travel the world, playing for thousands of adoring fans night after night, and you're with your gang of buddies. Oh, the gloriousness of it all, the private jets, the media exposure, the excitement, the perks, the sights, the sex, the drugs. You're every whim catered to by people whose job it is to, uh, well, cater to your every whim. And that really is the reality of it all. For maybe the top one-tenth of one percent of all the groups in the world, for the other 99.9%, going on the road is a trying ordeal that can get real old real fast. I mean, think about it. For the entire time you're on tour, you're living in a bubble, going where you're told to go, doing what you're told to do, and living out of a suitcase for months on end. You wake up in the van or the bus the morning after the gig, and you have no idea what city you're in, or even what country you're in. Then there's the bad food, the interviews with the same stupid questions all the time, the annoying fans, the late nights, the too much alcohol, too many drugs, and not enough sleep. The only thing that makes it all worthwhile is the fact that you get to play every night. But you know what? Even that gets old after a while. All you want to do is go home, do the laundry, and finally be left alone for a while. With that kind of working environment, life on the road can get pretty weird. How weird? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is part four of a series called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. We've already looked at 10 weird recordings, 10 skeletons performers have in their closets, and 10 weird cases of fans and stalkers. This time, it's 10 of the weirdest road stories I've ever heard. And we're going to begin with a really gross one. Now, let me just preface this by saying that when you're on tour, your reality gets a little distorted. And I think this first story kind of illustrates things nicely. We go back to the days of the original touring edition of the Lollapalooza tour. A bunch of young, passionate bands cooped up together on a caravan road trip across North America. The 1992 edition of the tour featured something called the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. This consisted of a bunch of freaky people with freaky talents. A favorite was a dude named Mr. Lifto. His thing was being able to hoist weights and things with his, um, well, his thing, his little Mr. Lifto. But then there was Matt the Tube Crowley. Matt's deal was that he could eat anything and then regurgitate it on command. He did this thing with a light bulb that was, um, I mean, you just had to see it. Anyway, part of his act involved swallowing this seven-foot hose. At the other end of the seven-foot hose was a hand pump. 
Now, Matt would pump all sorts of things directly into his stomach via the hose. There'd be beer and ketchup and mustard and chocolate and pink Pepto-Bismol, you know, for color, uh, syrup, anything that was available. So he'd pump it all in and then he'd pump it all back out again, which (laughs) it's gross, right? He would pour this mess into glasses and then offer the, uh, the, the cocktail, this cocktail of goo and bile, and Matt's half-digested last meal to anyone willing to drink it. This was this big dare. It was always done on a stage in front of a lot of people. You know, it was the early 90s. Maybe people were dumber back then. I don't know. But anyway, on one stop on this tour, which featured both Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell decided that they would have a drinking contest. And the drink was the stuff pumped out of Matt the Tube Crowley's stomach. Ooh. Oh, Eddie won this contest. You call it winning. That's weird road story number one, and I might as well get another gross one out of the way. At 1.18 on the afternoon of August the 8th, 2004, one of the tour buses used by the Dave Matthews Band crossed the Kinsey Street Bridge in Chicago. Now, the bus was empty, save for the driver. It was a dude named Stephen Wool. The Kinsey Street Bridge crosses the Chicago River and is made mostly of metal grates. Noticing this, Mr. Wool took the opportunity to empty the bus's septic system into the river. Saved him a trip to the RV park or whatever. So, 800 pounds of human waste, goosh. However, beneath the bridge at that very moment, and you got to remember that this is a bridge made of open metal grates, there was a sightseeing boat called the Little Lady. As it was the height of summer... This boat was loaded with about 100 tourists looking up into the sky at the Chicago skyline, just marveling at how beautiful this city was as they went under the bridge. Do I have to paint a picture? Anyway, while the boat raced back to the dock to get disinfected, the bus just kept on going. But there are security cameras on the bridge, and the cameras captured the entire scene. After an investigation, Wool was sentenced to 18 months probation, 150 hours of community service, and fined $10,000. And there was a $70,000 lawsuit involving violation of environmental laws. And then there were the angry sightseers. Now, it should be noted that Dave Matthews and his band cooperated fully with the investigation, right to the point of offering to donate DNA so that the offending waste could be positively identified. They also donated $50,000 to an organization called Friends of the Chicago River. Yeah. Weird story number three. Gross again. The cases of hepatitis caught by some early punk rockers, including Joe Strummer of The Clash. In the early days of the British punk rock scene, many fans worked at being as outrageous as possible at gigs. After a newspaper article appeared that said that fans often spit at bands, it became almost necessary to do this at shows. This practice became known as gobbing. It involves little more than working up some phlegm and spitting it at the performers on the stage. As a result, 
you can just imagine, uh, many performers found themselves covered with loogies and boogers and snot rockets and various horks. One day in 1979, The Clash were performing. The audience was gobbing. Joe Strummer was singing. His mouth was open and... uh, The result was a really nasty case of hepatitis. The Clash, featuring hepatitis patient Joe Strummer on vocals. Okay, here's another medical story. One of R.E.M.'s biggest records was Monster, which came out in 1994. It was the first time one of their albums entered the charts at number one. The world tour that followed started just fine. January 13th, 1995, kicking off in Perth, Australia. And everything was great until the 27th show on March the 1st, 1995 in Lausanne, Switzerland. 90 minutes into the set, just as the band was getting into the falsetto part of a song called Tongue, drummer Bill Berry says it felt like somebody dropped a bowling ball on his head. The pain was so intense he just had to stop. In fact, he had to be carried from the stage. Was it drugs? No. Alcohol? No. A migraine from the altitude? No. It was not one, but two potentially fatal brain aneurysms. The treatment? Emergency brain surgery. The tour was obviously postponed, and Bill spent eight long weeks recovering. And it was touch and go for a while because no one was sure how much damage had been done. Fortunately, though, Bill recovered, and on May the 15th, the tour resumed in San Francisco. And to show everyone that REM had a sense of humor about the whole thing, the tour program featured an x-ray of Bill's head, showing where the aneurysms were. Now, this story of Bill Berry's brain has been told many times. And that's not what I wanted to tell you. I wanted to talk about the fact that this was the second time that Bill Berry almost died on tour. In April of 1989, Bill collapsed on stage in Munich, Germany, and he was rushed to the hospital. Doctors could not figure out what was wrong with him. He was fine earlier in the day, but then during the show, he spiked a fever of 103 degrees. He had chills and muscle aches and a very, very bad headache. His eyes were red, he was nauseous, and it hurt like hell to even be touched. And then there was the rash. He had spots and blotches that radiated up from the wrists and ankles. Some looked like bruises. Now, Bill was obviously very, very sick, but with what? Well, let's do our differential diagnosis. What causes fever, chills, nausea, and a rash? Well, the first clue was the fever. Fever means infection. So the first thing the doctors needed to do was get Bill on antibiotics, STAT. But they didn't know the nature of the infection. The first and best guess was a bronchial infection. Usually the treatment for that would be penicillin and its related drugs, but that's not what they gave Bill. German doctors gave him tetracycline. Why? Well, maybe because Bill is allergic to the penicillin family. Maybe the doctor saw something in the skin rash that made them go with the tetracycline instead. Whatever the case, it worked, and Bill recovered. It wasn't until later that it was determined that Bill had come down with something called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Just before the tour, he was working in the garden. He must have been bitten by a tick that carried the disease. Probably didn't even know it. And doctors in Munich wouldn't have even known to look for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever because, well, it doesn't exist in Europe. It's almost exclusively a North American thing. And the only, only treatment for it is, you guessed it, tetracycline. All the other antibiotics won't work. So it's possible that had the German doctors not gone with this drug, for whatever reason, 
Bill might have suffered organ failure, slipped into a coma, and died. Got like an episode of House here, isn't it? It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Weird Road Story number five. Drummer Bill Berry's severe case of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. When we come back, a gorilla suit and an unlucky draw of the cards. Welcome back. This is part four of a series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock, and we're looking at 10 weird stories from the road. Here's a good one that involves Iggy Pop, Elton John, and a gorilla suit. Weird item number five. It was October 1973. Iggy Pop and the Stooges were playing a show at a venue called Richards in Atlanta. At the same time, Elton John was playing stadiums across America. Elton was engaged in a semi-friendly war of words with David Bowie at the time. Bowie, as you might know, was a big supporter of Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Elton decided that it would be fun to invade Bowie's space a little by crashing a Stooges show. And he wanted to do it in grand style. A photographer from a Detroit music magazine called Cream was tipped off. And Elton, who at this time was known for his flamboyant stage costumes, went out and found himself a gorilla suit. He put on this gorilla suit backstage, and the idea was to surprise Iggy mid-set as a dancing gorilla. Okay, I know it sounds like I'm making this up, but I swear to God, this is this is exactly what happened. The problem with this whole idea is that no one, no one told Iggy, and no one told Elton that Iggy was so jacked up on speed that he was a little altered that night. So when Elton bounded out on stage in the gorilla suit, Iggy thought it was an actual gorilla. And this freakout is captured on film, by the way. Iggy nearly died of fright. He ran off the stage, and it took a number of people to get him back. And then Elton removed his gorilla head, and they calmed Iggy down enough so he could finish the show. Then they sang a couple of songs together. Iggy bare-chested, Elton in a gorilla suit. Iggy and the Stooges, favorites of Elton John, but only when he's wearing a gorilla suit, apparently. That's weird on-the-road thing number five. Item number six involves somebody dying. When it comes to the unluckiest members of Metallica, the award has to go to Cliff Burton. He was the one who was killed in that awful tour bus accident in Sweden on September the 27th, 1986. Metallica was on tour in support of their Master of Puppets album and were between Stockholm and Copenhagen. The band had drawn cards to see who would get which bunks on the bus. Cliff drew the ace of spades, which was a high card, so he got to choose first. And then he went to bed. As Cliff slept and as dawn approached, the bus hit some black ice. The driver lost control. The bus left the road. Cliff was thrown from his bunk and through the window. And then the bus rolled on top of him. Now, this alone might not have killed him, although he was badly hurt. Cliff was trapped under the bus until rescue crews arrived. As a winch was being used to raise the bus off of Cliff, the cable slipped, and Cliff was crushed for a second time. That most certainly killed him. And to think, it all started with a cut of the cards. Here's a slice of Metallica from Master of Puppets, and it's an instrumental called Orion, which was written mostly by Cliff Burton. 
Metallica, featuring original and deceased bass player Cliff Burton. We have four more weird things from the road to discuss on this show. They include a restrained performance from Linkin Park, U2 versus the Mexican Secret Service, and a strange meeting between Marilyn Manson and some Sesame Street characters in a bar. This is part four of a 10-part series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock. And this episode focuses on 10 weird things from the road. We're up to item number seven. Malaysia. It's a Muslim country that is walking a very difficult line between secularism and traditional Muslim values. This is a balancing act that extends to all facets of government regulation. This also means that certain compromises between hardliners and secularists need to be made. This is where Lincoln Park comes in. Now, if you've ever seen Lincoln Park perform live, you'll know that it's a pretty energetic affair. Lots of movements, lots of yelling and screaming and jumping around, and they might swear once in a while. That's a Lincoln Park show. Well, it's most Lincoln Park shows. The band was booked to play a show in Merdeka Stadium in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia on October the 15th of 2003. This created much angst in many corners of Malaysian society. Religious groups demanded that the show be canceled because rock music corrupted youth. After all, this music might encourage untoward public behavior such as dancing and singing. And have you seen the way the Lincoln Park heathens are dressed? Exposed to skin. And they don't sing their songs, they scream. This is unacceptable. But everyone involved was willing to negotiate, and they found those compromises. Check out this list of conditions from the government's Artist Performance Ethics document. Number one, the audience must remain seated at all times. No jumping around and no dancing. Number two, stage decoration must be limited to a simple backdrop with the Linkin Park logo. Number three, the band must be dressed from the chest to the knees. No shorts, no exposed skin. The musicians may not wear anything obscene linked to drugs or related negative elements. Number four. The band must not swear or engage in any violent or erotic behavior. The artist must not display rough, raunchy actions that conflict with pure values, such as leaping around or throwing something from the stage to the audience. And number five, Lincoln Park must agree to be seated during the entire performance. Oh, and number six, Lincoln Park must agree not to scream during any songs. Now, Lincoln Park's attitude was... I guess it's better than not playing at all. So on October the 15th of 2003, Linkin Park played a seated performance in front of 50,000 similarly seated fans in Kuala Lumpur. Lots of cops too, just to keep an eye on the band and the fans and all the religious groups demonstrating outside. But the show came off without a hitch. But can you imagine a Linkin Park show without screaming and jumping and dancing and swearing? Linkin Park's subdued live debut in Malaysia. Weird thing from the road number seven. Weird thing number eight involves an encounter between U2 and the Mexican secret police. The date for this was December the 3rd, 1997 at Foro Sol Stadium in Mexico City. U2 had just played a 25-song set and were coming off stage when one of their security guys said, you need to get in the car and get out of here now. Here's what happened. Three sons of Mexican President Ernesto Zedillo just showed up unannounced at the gig. They didn't have any tickets or any passes, just the sons and their group of Secret Service bodyguards. 
Now, the local security guys hired for the venue weren't about to argue, so the Zadio boys and their entourage just drove into the backstage area in a van, and they watched the show from the wings. Towards the end of the gig, they wanted to leave. So the Secret Service guys started roughly clearing a path through the crowd and decided to take a shortcut through a backstage area that was off-limits to everyone but the people who were operating the camera cranes for a DVD shoot. Because there are all these counterweights swinging around, it's really not a safe place to be for anyone getting knocked in the head. One of the camera operators rushed over to tell them to get out. And that's when things got weird. U2's road crew saw that something was going on. They jumped in to help. They had no idea who these people were. They were just doing their jobs. When the Secret Service dudes tried to get out, Jerry Melle, the head of U2 security detail, tried to block the van with his body. It was his job to detain the people in the van until the police arrived. Again, he had no idea who it was in the van. But the van just ran over Jerry, resulting in serious back injuries. Honestly, the dude has never really been the same. Next thing you 2 knows, they get a call from the president. Please don't go to the press about this. Instead, please come round to the palace so we can discuss this. So the next day, everybody from the band found themselves in the president's office. The sons were there too with albums that they expected to be autographed. Zadio said, look, let's forget about what happened. This could have been a lot worse. You took on the Mexican Secret Service. Let it go. So in other words, badges? We don't need no stinking badges. So what could you two do? Meanwhile, poor Jerry still has a very bad back. Here's you two from that night in Mexico, recorded right about the very second the Mexican Secret Service ran over their chief of security backstage. You two, live in Mexico City. This is Weird on the Road, item number nine. January 6th, 1996. Marilyn Manson played a show at a place called Stars in Allentown, Pennsylvania. By the time the show was over, there was a raging blizzard outside. Three feet of snow dumped on the area, stranding everyone in their hotel. Stranded with the band in the same hotel were Shaquille O'Neal and the members of the Orlando Magic. Also stranded were the cast members of Sesame Street Live. You know the production I'm talking about, right? With nowhere else to go, the band, the team, and the cast of Sesame Street, there was Bert and Ernie and Oscar the Grouch and the Cookie Monster and Big Bird, they all gathered in the bar drank very heavily, and sang songs together until three in the morning. It's a true story. I have one final weird thing from the road. It's item number 10, and it involves a gig. A virtual gig, but a gig nonetheless. It's by Blur on Mars. Bassist Alex James and drummer Dave Roundtree have always been fans of space and astronomy. And when they heard that Britain was going to launch a probe to Mars, they wanted in. But what could they do? Well, what about if Blur could provide the first music from Mars? They could write a song for the probe that would then be broadcast to the universe upon a successful landing. It would be the probe's way of saying, hey, I'm here, I'm all right, and I'm about to start searching for Martians. The British Space Agency people thought this was a great idea. 
After all, Blur was, at the time, one of the two or three biggest bands in the UK. How properly British would such a thing be? And besides, the usual method of communication was usually just a bunch of boring computer telemetry. Why not celebrate in song? Essentially, said Roundtree, we are going to play the first gig on Mars. As it turns out, the contract that we have with our record company covers us for both the Earth and the solar system. And so it came to pass that on January the 30th of 2002, the Blur Boffins went into the studio to record a specially commissioned piece of music loosely based on a special mathematical sequence. The probe was called Beagle 2 and was designed to land on the Martian surface in an equatorial area known as Isidus Planitia. It was launched on June 2nd, 2003, with the projected landing on Christmas Day of that year. This is awesome, right? So what happened? <laughs> we don't know. Beagle 2 hitched a ride on a parent spacecraft called the Mars Express. It successfully separated in Martian orbit without incident on December the 19th. At 2.47 a.m. London time on December the 25th, Beagle 2 began to descend through the Martian atmosphere. Seven minutes later, it was supposed to be on the surface. Supposed to be. Like so many other Martian probes before it, Beagle 2 was lost. Nothing was ever heard from it again, and Blur's debut on Mars was cancelled due to um, scheduling difficulties. Want to hear what the gig was supposed to sound like? Okay, here's Blur with the instrumental that they wrote for their gig on Mars. And like the probe, it's called Beagle 2. Blur and Beagle 2, the recording that was supposed to have brought rock and roll to Mars. That's weird on the road story number 10. On the next edition of the Ongoing History of New Music, it's going to be part number 5 of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. The topic will be drugs. It'll contain stories of things like exploding internal organs, freakouts in the first class section, and what happens when you think you're being chased by aliens sent by Satan bent on sucking out your vital essence. Okay, you want weird? You're going to get weird. Join me next time for part five of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 